Hi, this is Annika. Welcome to the podcast Gender and Climate. In this podcast, we talk about how climate change affects people around the world with focus on gender differences. In other words, how gender and climate affect and relate to each other. We always pick one specific topic to cover the subject from different angles. So, let's get started! Hi and welcome back everyone to a new episode of the podcast Gender and Climate. This is Annika. So today actually we have a wonderful guest at our Blue Impact Sofa, Natasha Goethe. Natasha is the Senior Director of Innovative Finance at Impact Investment Exchange, where she has worked on IIX, Gender Lens Invest Initiatives and Impact Measurement work in Asia Pacific, East Africa and the United States. Natasha's team focuses on the structuring, investor relations and impact assessment for IAX award-winning Women's Livelihood Bond TM series that is empowering one plus million in the Global South to build economic security and climate resilience. Natasha also spearheads the Orange Bond Initiative, the world's first depth asset class for investing in gender equality and diversity. So, hi Natasha, I'm so happy to have you here on the Blue Impact Sofa and the Gender and Climate Podcast. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here and such an important and timely topic. So, I'm very thrilled to be sharing what I know uh, with your listeners. Well, I am thrilled what you're going to share because as already mentioned, we only have dived into the kind of like money topic, as I would say, only once in episode number five where we talked about climate finance so um, i'm so so happy to shed light on that important topic from a different different aspect and different perspective but actually before we get started i would like to ask you where are you right now and where did you grow up actually so that my listeners have a slightly personal background of who you are actually I'm based out of Singapore. I work, um, as Annika said, in, as the Senior Director of the Impact Investment Exchange, and this is our global headquarters. We're very proud to be headquartered in the Global South and uh, doing a lot of this work from uh, regions which are impacted the most, both by gender inequity, but also by climate change. Uh, I grew up in the Himalayan mountains, uh, um, and so that's actually where I was born. But then I um, have had the great honor and privilege, uh, I would say, to live in many parts of the world after that and grow up. I have family in Los Angeles. I've been in Oxford. I've been in New York. Uh, and then I found myself in Singapore. So I've done a full circle across the world, come back to Asia. <laughs> Where your heart is. And uh, yeah, it seems like you're happy. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, thank you for your short introduction. It gives us a, a, a good... Um, understanding of what personal background you have and what you've already been been through personally and what you've already seen on this planet so natasha there is um we want to dive to you today into the topic of orange bonds actually and um there is so much money out in the market there is huge amounts of money being invested every day and amounts of money most people can't even imagine because they're just too big um I would like to ask you, what is actually the term of orange bonds that we are today talking about? And if you could give us, please, a brief explanation answering when were orange bonds first introduced and who came up with them and why are they called actually orange bonds? And what is what is that whole term actually that we're talking about, basically? 
course. Um, and so the United Nations in 2015 uh, launched their Sustainable Development Goals. There are 17 goals. The fifth goal focused on gender equality is orange in color. And really, I think we at the Impact Investment Exchange have been very inspired looking at um, the wonderful asset class that green bonds have now become. It's a trillion dollar asset class. Uh, green bonds tend to primarily advance climate action. With, you, with the label of green, it became much easier for investors to understand what they were participating in from an impact perspective. It became easier for issuers to communicate what the capital was going to be used for. And so once you had a standard green bonds and the green bond principles, uh, we saw this influx of capital coming in. We now have sovereign issuers, we have corporate issuers, and we have financial institutions issuing these bonds. IIX in 2017 uh, issued the world's first gender bond. Now, this wasn't a standard. It was just a thing we did. We just couldn't understand why no one was investing in women. Uh, we spent many years issuing these bonds, and a lot of our bonds focused also on empowering women to advance climate action. Mm -hmm. And so we had spent a lot of time uh, thinking about how do we make this an asset class that is equally strong as the green bonds. And that's when we partnered with a number of other actors, the United States Development Finance Corporation, the Australian Department for Foreign Affairs and Trade, Nuveen, one of the largest green bond investors in the world, um, water.org, looking at a very interesting aspect of climate uh, action and climate adaptation, ANZ Bank, Sherman and Sterling. Uh, and so this wonderful group really came together from all these different perspectives to say, all right, let's take what we learned and let's build this new asset class, which was focused on gender equality. And a big part of that, uh, in our view, has always been that when you're investing in gender equality through bonds, uh, this is a you know multi-million dollar mm -hmm. uh, bond market. Uh, how can you also change this view of women always being positioned as victims of climate change, of conflict, of COVID, um, and recognize they can be solutions to many of these issues because you are investing to empower them. You're investing them to tap into what I call the Athenian edge. So if you know a little bit about Greek mythology, this is a term that I coined during a part of my research on um, climate security and the role of gender in that when I was uh, at Harvard. Really, you would see um, there are two gods of war. There's Ares and there's Athena. And Ares would focus on winning wars with brute force, um, whereas Athena would use wisdom to, to achieve her victories. And really, it is the inherent wisdom and the insights that women bring because they have such a close relationship with nature in so many parts of the world. They're primarily responsible for collecting water in majority of the world. They are uh, an extremely important part of agricultural value chains. Most of the food you eat is grown by a woman somewhere. She may not own the land, but she's likely grown your food. And they are inherently um, focused on the future. They're focused on multi-generational impact. And they are more, a lot of research shows they are more likely to take green decisions. So a big part of the orange bonds as an asset class also advocates it should be cross-cutting. It's not just about saving women. It's really empowering women to address issues like climate change. And therefore, orange and green, I think, complement each other very well, which is why I was so excited to be on your podcast. <laughs> yeah, I'm so happy to have you because you mentioned already so many points, which are so crucial. And um, you already said so many things um, about the outcomes 
of of when we invest in these bonds of course we are going to strengthen women because they are the one being at the forefront and all that we know about it but um what are the potential outcomes that we see when money is invested in orange bonds and what is, what is it that we really can see and at at the end uh, as result that's an excellent question and i think this is something people should focus on more actually you know what is the action that's been taken and what's been achieved the big issue unfortunately with green bonds as many of us who have been in the industry for several years know is the greenwashing and it's something people don't like to talk about but it does happen uh, and i think with orange bonds you know it is a bit i would say not easier but perhaps we're well positioned to say if the proceeds of these bonds are supposed to go towards women or gender minorities or girls um we should be able to check with them and ask them what kind of impact was achieved and so transparency is actually a huge possibility as long as you're willing uh to invest in it and to value transparency so when we have uh, uh launched the orange bonds one of the big principles of the orange bonds is around data and transparency mm-hmm. and so that really positions me to answer your question is we actually for our first orange bond that um i issued the first one last year uh when the principles were first uh announced in october of 2022 ix issued the first orange bond in december so very shortly after uh of 2022 um and our orange bond was very much focused on ensuring that women can achieve a multitude of outcomes it was very focused on it was called the women's livelihood bond 5 5 for um fifth issuance in our series but also sdg 5 so mm-hmm. therefore the color of orange um the wlb 5 uh, which was the first orange bond had a number of outcomes i would say most primarily uh we focused on empowering women to increase their income increase their financial resilience increase their ability uh to own productive assets uh, i think ownership is a big um or distinction in the gender inequality we're seeing uh and therefore also to build their climate resilience the secondary outcomes we see from coming from that are multigenerational impacts we're seeing daughters staying longer in school we're seeing uh from the uh peace and security level i'm sure you know most of the wars we're going to see now will be climate related mm-hmm. and many of these will be stabilized if we have higher gender equality women peace and security is one of the most important and sadly the most underfunded agenda globally uh unfortunately and this is going to have uh, extreme consequences on climate security of countries as well i have done a regression analysis that shows that countries have higher climate adaptive capacity uh and uh less propensity to engage in conflict with a neighboring state or any other state across the world if they have higher gender equality so i would say one of the we're saying uh, long term outcomes of these orange bonds will hopefully also be to stabilize climate security because you will be growing food in a more sustainable way you will be adapting to uh, having more access to water and sanitation for these women and you will also make sure that they are part of the green transition and i cannot emphasize the importance of that enough you know one of the investments we made was um, ensuring women have equal access to electric vehicles otherwise you always think of men being the innovators where actually a lot of the green decisions we've seen in corporates are often taken by women so we have to make sure more women are in corporates but also more women are in supply chains because corporates is, again women in corporates is a very more western way of thinking about this if you're thinking about asia and africa where our bonds invest in you have to make sure they are affordable they're part of supply chains they're uh, part of clients and customers as well mm-hmm. so it's a very 
holistic way of thinking about what the outcomes can be in the short term and what the ripple effects will be in the long term. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you already mentioned right at the beginning of sharing your information that uh, transparency is absolutely key uh, to you. How do you ensure uh, that transparency with orange bonds? So transparency with Orange Bond is really one of the ways that um, it was written into the principles which the steering committee crafted was uh, principle three. Principle one is how you use your proceeds. Principle two is who makes the decisions, making sure women are also deciding where money goes. Uh, principle three is transparency. So you can't be an Orange Bond if you don't honor principle three. And the way that it guides you to do that is it mandates you to do an annual report on what your impact was. Um, and to be fair, I believe most of the green bonds and social bonds globally are also require you to do uh, reporting. However, the big difference is, um, are you reporting uh, what you think happened or are you asking the communities who got the capital, whether firstly they got the capital at all, and secondly, whether it actually made the impact you expected it to make. Um, orange bonds require you to do that extra step. And I think we've, it's been really interesting for us. You know, I don't want to make this sound like the easiest thing in the world. Uh, climate finance and gender finance are not easy. Otherwise we wouldn't be in this situation <laughs> right now. Uh, and so a lot of pushback that we heard from the market was actually on the impact confirmation. It's not a convenient thing to do. People don't want to pay for it. Um, our argument is based on our own experience of uh, um, uh, issuing these bonds for several years now. Um, we've never had any defaults in our mm -hmm. issuances. And I think that's because we're speaking constantly to the women. We're checking whether they've got the proceeds. We've, we're checking if they've made an, um, an impact to their life have, and the impact outcomes are actually positive. You've increased income, you're more financially resilient, you're more um, uh, less prone to climate risk. And therefore you're most likely to repay the capital at the end of the day. So I would argue actually transparency may be uh, positioned as this cost um, to do the right thing, but actually it's a smart thing to do. And it's not a cost, it's an investment because you are protecting your own capital by making sure women have a voice and are given a value in the investment decision-making process. And so that's how we do it. And that's also why we do it. And that's actually part of the baseline to have in the end a higher return on invest, I, I would I would assume. Um, talking about money, really getting into the figures, um, I'm of course interested how much money is invested in these bonds already actually and um, how would you how you would say these bonds will shape reform and um, yeah change the investor i.e investment market. How will all of that money like shift <laughs> yeah i know uh what's the transformation that we're expecting exactly right? so that's the transformation a, that's a very good question uh long-term way of thinking about what this is supposed to be doing as an asset class um we see this really as um so so far to the first part of your question the principles were officially written in uh and published in october it was not just the steering committee we actually had um uh, invited uh, about 100 ecosystem actors across the world. We did this a little differently. We didn't just have bankers and investors who were the mm -hmm. traditional authors of the green bond principles write this um, because we wanted things like transparency and diversity uh, included in the principles. We had uh, civil society also participate in the roundtables. We had uh, NGO members, we had human rights activists, we had gender specialists looking at this and saying, what's actually going wrong on the ground and how do we make sure this asset class 
um, does not only focus on scale, the big numbers. I know it's very impressive to say green bonds are one trillion dollar market size, but green bonds also, uh, as as you may know, um, crashed as a market a little bit last year. It was the first time uh, because economies were not doing well because of all the climate change and war and COVID. Um, that green bonds actually declined their number of issuances and total capital allocated, whereas our orange bond was actually fully subscribed last year. And so I really think it's um, interesting to see that. And that's why the principles were written in this way. So orange bonds uh, principles were written in October. We did the first bond, which was 50 million in um, December. And following that, uh, we've seen about the total capital has cost just over 100 million already in less than a year, which is very exciting. Mm -hmm. uh, we're in discussions with a few other issuers. You know, IX was very excited to be the first orange bond issuer and all our issuances are now orange. Uh, but we now have um, issuers focused on actually peace and security and racial equality uh, in parts of Europe and the United States who are uh, looking at these orange bond issuances. And of course, we're doing another $100 million issuance uh, later this year in Asia and Africa. Mm -hmm. uh, and so right away, we're seeing that um, we are focused not just on scaling this up, which uh, the goal is to reach uh, $10 billion by 2030. And I think we are on track for that. Uh, this, the goal is to balance scale with actual depth of impact. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, how would you see the markets transforming or what do, what is this, the future of orange bonds? How will orange bonds shape, change and reform the market? I think we're seeing this um, as a bigger, almost orange movement. Um, uh, if you will, orange capital, we hope can take many different forms. Uh, as gender lens investing has been sort of loosely defined, everyone who you ask what gender lens investing is will give you a slightly different explanation. And I think in parts, that's the beauty of it. Um, with Orange, I think with the commitments to using proceeds for women and gender minorities, having diversity in investment decision-making, uh, very powerful. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's one of the things that's very new about Orange Bonds. Um, I have personally seen many gender bonds being issued where the entire investment committee was white men. Um, and they're investing in women empowerment in Africa, uh, you know, or, uh, you know, Asia. It's a little strange. Uh, yeah. So, you you know, actually, there's so much research that shows that even corporates are more profitable by, you know, up to 26% if they're women on the board or women uh, who are making decisions. And it's not just, you know, as I said, I, I do believe women have this Athenian edge because, they bring different perspectives. It's not that they are better or worse than men. It, feminism has never been about that. It's because A, they are equal and should be treated as such. And B, because they have unique lived experiences and we are missing out on solving so many problems and innovating to solve issues like climate change, for instance, but also peace and security uh, and many issues of the nexus of both if we have only half the population deciding everything. So I think it's wonderful complementarity. This is not meant to threaten the status quo. It is meant to strengthen the status quo. And I think that's a very different way about thinking about transformation. Um, it does not always have to only be disruptive and displacing people who are in positions of power. This is what we, I think is true empowerment of financial markets is when we democratize it, when we make it more inclusive, and when we openly embrace diversity, in inclusion, and equality um, in a way that will then eventually, we hope, also honor being transparent and uh, mobilizing capital in a way that is meaningful 
uh, to people at the last mile uh, who are getting left out of financial markets at this point. So that's the way we see it transforming um, uh, from a, I would say, almost a philosophical point of view and a, a feminist philosophy point of view. The other way uh, to be more, uh, talk in more financial terms is we see this, as I previously mentioned, as a cross-cutting asset class. We think a peace bond could have a gender lens. And we are talking to someone who's uh, done a bond focused on refugees and is considering uh, having a gender lens being more prominent. We think green bonds can have a gender lens. And in fact, our bonds, like I said, are, are very focused on ensuring climate action happens, but they are doing it through the empowerment of women. And similarly, we think traditional bonds who are focused on prosperity can also be orange in nature uh, because we are seeing more and more SMEs, for instance, across the world are owned by women. Um, and we really need to graduate them such that we can rebuild and build back better from everything the world has lost from COVID and make sure that the entire population is more resilient if we face crises again. Uh, and so we're not reacting to things, but we are prepared uh, as uh, humanity as a whole. And also keep, keeping in mind the other species who are getting affected by this because we're all one circle. It's, it's one planet and we have to all protect each other at this point. Protecting each other is a very good word to, to come to my next question because we're talking, of course, about the gender climate nexus, so about the interconnectedness of both uh, topics. So, and I'm extremely curious to know your thoughts on how orange capital in general can influence climate security. Ah, yes. So that's an excellent one. So <laughs> I'm going to answer this from... Um, uh, the perspective of, say, the women, peace and security agenda, mm -hmm. um, so that we understand it from an existing framework. Women, peace and security has always um, uh, advocated that if you have um, uh, four pillars, they would strengthen uh, the likelihood of a nation not engaging in conflict. And we know also climate change is a threat, is a conflict threat multiplier. Um, if you have um, communities who are water stressed, uh, there are water wars, there's so many wars being fought over rivers, literally. If you have communities that can't find food because of changing climate and their agricultural produce is getting uh, damaged, as we're seeing, say, in countries like Ethiopia, um, you would see issues uh, related to climate security. And similarly, if you see uh, a lot of the wars, as we all know, uh, and we won't mention which ones, are fought over oil. Uh, and so, you know, these these are straight away three big reasons why you would have uh, climate insecurity. Now, if you look at it through the Women, Peace and Security agenda, the four pillars are um, prevention, protection, relief and recovery and participation. So I'll go very briefly over my thoughts on all four. When it comes to prevention, um, we cannot prevent climate change if we don't have half the population not being part of the green workforce or not being able to afford clean energy solutions. Um, we are seeing more and more, in fact, that household energy decisions are often taken by women. And so it is very important to design clean energy products that suit women, uh, clean cook stoves being a good example of that. But also, you know, I would say going much beyond that, because I think that was interesting maybe 10 years ago. Uh, it is still interesting in some parts of the world. But for instance, I would say even thinking about electric vehicles and making sure women have access to that and they're designed with women in mind because most transportation is actually a very male dominated industry. Um, so that's one right away on prevention. The role of women actually making sure climate change uh, does not happen. Again, uh, we are, we're also seeing corporates um, where if you have women um, and men equally represented at the top, uh, they tend to take greener decisions and they have uh, better sustainability plans. 
therefore lowering emissions. The second pillar is protection. Uh, and I think this is a really fascinating one. Um, you would protect inherently, we're seeing uh, there's a theory called linked oppression theory, which means uh, since women themselves have seen and understood what it means to be oppressed, they have very high levels of empathy with say, other creatures. Uh, they have a natural tendency, perhaps higher uh, than many communities and not just women, but particularly say indigenous women or women of color who are facing intersectional forms of discrimination of racism or sexism, etc., cetera, uh, would feel more empathy towards other creatures. They tend to take decisions to protect the oceans and the forests much more. Uh, and therefore having them on those committees has shown uh, better improvements because they are looking at the perspective of someone else who's been oppressed because they understand it. Uh, and again, this is not to say men couldn't take those decisions, but women are bringing their unique lived experience uh, to this. We're also seeing protecting assets such as agriculture. We know women had equal access to land and agricultural inputs. We would improve food security dramatically uh, by, I, I would say, I think, the figure is by 35%, you could actually in, in immensely influence food security. And if you have women on water management programs, there is a six to seven times increase in efficiency of conserving water. So that's on protection. And so I, I link prevention to mitigation and protection to adaptation. Finally, if you come to say relief and recovery, say this is when you're in a state of war already, um, relief and recovery is really when women can come in a war that has been aggravated by climate change, that is. Relief and recovery really allows you to um, come in with women uh, to improve uh, the social and the economic situation of a community. Uh, again, if women are better educated, uh, they're likely to have the ability to take jobs, which reduces the likelihood that they will join an armed force or their family will have to join an armed force. It can be something as simple as that. Um, and, and that's both social and economic because it's education and a livelihood. And then finally, if you come to issues uh, such as uh, participation, which is the final pillar of women, peace and security, uh, I would say just governance is such an important pillar. We are seeing that nations, like I said, which have uh, more gender equality in leadership uh, are less prone to engaging in conflict. Uh, peace agreements last uh, 15 years longer. They have a 35% increased chance if there are women sitting at the peace table. And so uh, I think to fight climate uh, uh, insecurity, uh, since many of the wars will be linked to that, uh, leaving women out of the equation uh, is a way that that will uh, be immensely detrimental to our ability to fight uh, this very complex nexus. Uh, and so therefore, uh, this is actually sort of part of my sort of Athenian edge framework of how you would superimpose <laughs> women, peace and security onto existing climate uh, change issues that we're seeing. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned already man many, many things. Um, but even though you mentioned all of that, I want to like ask you if you have any more recommendations that you would give and how to tackle the gender climate nexus, because you already mentioned the political um and the economical side of the coins, I would uh, like to maybe conclude everything or give any recommendations that you that you may further have. Yeah, um, I would say um, it would be recommendations, maybe very much focused again, coming back to say, uh, you know, my roots coming from the Himalayas, we're in a zone which is, you know, at the border of India and Pakistan. So I, I have this inherent understanding of what it means to be in a zone that could be to war. Uh, we're also, I've lived in parts of the world, uh, like I said, in, in Asia, but also 
in, in the US, which are very badly affected by climate change. We're seeing wildfires in one part of the world, we're seeing heat waves in the other. Uh, and, and I think, again, uh, the reason I'm able to therefore understand some of these issues is because I have that unique lived experience. Uh, and that really brings me to the point that we cannot keep having a top-down approach of a few people in power from certain parts of the world uh, and certain gender uh, decide everything. Because even though they may be immensely knowledgeable, and this is again not to take away from the wonderful work people are already doing, um, we need to make sure we are more inclusive that the table where we talk about uh, gender and climate has to be built such that everyone has a voice uh, because the voices of the populations who are on the front lines, as you very rightly put it at the beginning of this, cannot be left out of this. We simply don't have the time uh, to solve climate change. And we are way behind where we thought we would be in terms of gender equality as well. When you think about the UN 2030 agenda. Um, so we have to, I would say my one recommendation would be broaden the table Make sure there are people of color at the table. Make sure indigenous communities are at the table. And please make sure there are women at the table. Yeah, absolutely. Natasha, it's been it's been a huge pleasure for me. I thank you so, so much for being our guest today, having shared all of these very, very valuable and insightful uh, information. Uh, I want to thank you so, so much. And I hope my listeners enjoyed this episode as much as I did. I learned a lot. Thank you so, so much, Natasha. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And I think you asked excellent questions because you feel so deeply and passionately about this. And uh, it's been incredible to have this conversation with you. And thank you for the opportunity. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Please make sure to hit the bell to not miss any episode. If you enjoyed it, share the podcast with your friends and help us spread the word. Because only together we can change our world to the better.